one second. <laughs> All right, I'm turning my camera off because I'm going to do things. I think those those were Brian's first words. Oh wait, wait, <laughs> Katie, you're not participating in this. No, I'm just regulating. That's uh, that's very sad. Okay, I didn't. I'm know sorry. That. It's all right. I'll jump in through the chat. There's a chat? I don't know. How do you do, you do that? Yeah, oh. if, if we become shambolic and unruly, Katie will uh, yeah. smack us up. David, you don't have access to the chat because we needed to talk about you. Oh, I see. Perfect. All right, then. Go to hell. Welcome to the 52nd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum, and our guests today are, are two of our OGs, Seth Katz and Jared Marcel Pollan. You guys know who they are. But we also have with us the author of our second title coming out on September 1st, David Hollander, who is also a professor of creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College, where all of us are alumni. Even David, right? Am I right, David? That is correct, yeah. Yeah. And before we get started, I am going to shamelessly, just absolutely brutally shamelessly self-promote. I just got a story published in Purple Wall Stories. It's their first issue. And it's like a new idea where they kind of pit stories against one another and then people vote on which one they like more, which is super exciting because I just can't wait to lose, you know? So yeah, so it's purple wall stories and my story is called spit. That's it. It's a spit. So please vote. Please vote. Yeah, please vote. I can't wait to see how much I lose by with my very limited digital presence, which most of us here can commiserate on except for our our producer probably. And where do people um, oh, go? Yeah, no, David, David, you, you know, you're, you're a master of social media without even trying. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but what you're describing um, reminds me a little bit of. It means you get a lot of likes, like, you know, you, you post something and then people like it <sighs> and then it's like, wow, I'm good at this. I don't know. That's pretty I much I think uh, you must be referring to my massive Facebook audience, but that's just because I'm old and, and that's where all the old people are now. So yeah, 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 cave book, as Katie is so fond yes, of uh, calling yes. it. But the contest for your story reminds me a little bit of literary deathmatch. Do you, do you guys know what that is? No? Uh, no. It's this, I, I participated in one. Uh, basically, several readers show up, and there's a panel of judges, sort of American Idol style. And each of these, I think there are four readers, and you get matched up to, uh, in, in pairs. And so you compete against the person you're paired with. You both read your story out loud. And then the judges sort of make uh, disparaging remarks. And then they choose a winner from each pair. And then those two come up against each other. Uh, this is all done in public in front of like a massive audience. I, I lost when I went. I was paired with Robert Lopez and he beat me. Oh, yeah. wow. Strictly disparaging remarks? Like is, it, is that like, eh. it, like everyone's a little Simon Cowell? Wannabe? Basically, everyone's trying to get a laugh that, that I would. Uh, but but it, was a, it, was a fun, it was kind of fun. Although I should have, so Robert Lopez had wanted, when he saw that we were going to have to compete against each other, he didn't really like that idea since we're friends. So he told me we should do like an Andy Kaufman thing and just go out and get a drink somewhere and just leave the reading. And then they would call our names and we would not be there. But it was really a big, there were like hundreds of people there. 
And uh, I told him I couldn't. I didn't want to let anyone down. But secretly, I was thinking I was going to kick his ass. If I'd known I was going to lose, I definitely would have would have gone for the performance art. This is a really terrible story. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think it's a great story because I have to um, I have to remind you guys that I came up with this idea on my own. You know, you know when you come up with an idea that's already been come up with, but you did it on your own. You know, uh, jo- Jonathan Stanzen in my novel, where they do like little poet battles. Mm-hmm. Yes. An idea that you've come up on your own, but yeah. Okay, well, anyway, let's talk about Anthropica because I'm really excited about it. I know David's really excited about it. <laughs> we have it coming out on the first. <laughs> None of us are excited about it, but David is. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, after that, it's pretty much, you know, we're trying to spread the excitement and, you know, there's a lot of infectiousness going around and we're, we're, hoping, we're hoping that we can replicate that sort of thing. But yeah, no one else. I mean, Seth, Jared, like, no, no excitement, right? None. Desire is imitative. If you say so. I, well, no, it's not me saying that. It's uh, Rene Girard who says that. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> credibility. Uh, That's what they teach you in marketing. You know, you, you know, if you want to advertise something, you know, use someone with credibility. Well, I got an advanced copy of Anthropica, so I've already read it. So, so my excitement has, I mean, any excitement I would have about reading the book it's you know, climaxed. I, it's been fulfilled. Uh, yeah, it's climaxed. So, I mean, I'm excited for other people to read it. Yeah, provided they have the proper reaction to it, which is just, you know, exuberant, you know, glee. Exactly. So, David, yeah, let's talk about first the essay you're writing or, you know, anything related to that. But you are writing an essay right now about publishing a novel, your second novel, 20 years apart. And like what that experience is like, because it's a very Gaddis-like experience, mm-hmm. you know. I love the recognitions. And then well, what was after? Was JR yes. the one after that? Yeah. 20 JR. years later? Yeah. Yeah. JR was when? Was it Was it like late 60s or early 70s? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So we got a, a Gaddis-esque situation here. And it is very similar in the sense that Gaddis is a, you know, he wrote this mammoth novel. And, you know, your first book, LIE, wasn't, you know mammothy but it was it was very it was very literary obviously which is all we do over here and i don't know the climate for gaddis like obviously wasn't uh, conducive <laughs> i guess you'd say the recognitions is an easy book to read it's very long it's very uh it's very layered i mean like it's just definitely one of the most nuanced novels i've ever read and then he comes out 20 years later after working uh where did he work at some some businessy job something denny's you know uh, does anyone know the denny's mcdonald mcdonald <laughs> <laughs> gaddis worked at a denny's yeah he, he was on the board no he I took thought, it public actually he took denny's public he, i don't I, I mean we probably shouldn't speculate about this but like he came I thought up with he the grand like slam breakfast i thought he like i thought he worked on mad avenue or something I, like that. he he definitely was in advertising yeah. you're not speculating he did not work at denny's in advertising that was it but right, he right. he thought about it so I, you stayed I, in the I, game I, at least you know did. you were the you gave up tenure as well a lot of things happened so let's talk about that well i think this might be speculation i don't know if gaddis wrote books in between those two mammoth books i i actually wrote a bunch of them it's just nobody wanted to publish them so i've been writing over that over that 20 year period 20 years is a really long time and it's hard to like reduce that 20 years to some kind of a soundbite or to tell you what happened over those 20 years. But I know I uh, my writing kept changing. 
you know, I probably wrote five books over, over that 20 year period that did not get published. And in trying to write an essay about this experience, it's been really hard because what I'm realizing is that the essay would have to be, uh, itself would have to be a book in order to do any of it any justice because, I mean, you're talking about 20 years of my life. But, you know, both of my books did come out around global catastrophes. Like LIE came out not not long before right. 9/11, and of course Anthropica is coming out. So, I I think it's the universe saying that it doesn't want me to publish books. And I know that this book <laughs> is supposed to come out September 1st, but you know, this would be a good time to get your your shelter all tidied up because <laughs> I, I suspect something very bad is going to happen in the next month because um, that's how I feel about. I mean, not even not even jokingly. I, I feel like everything that could break the wrong way for me in my writing career always has. So when LIE came out, you know, that book, you know, Random House had a 25,000 first print run. The book was everywhere. I walked into any bookstore. My book was like prominently displayed. So that was a moment where it seemed like things were about to happen. And then for whatever reason, they didn't happen. And the decisions I made immediately after that, which were sort of like um, to ignore the advice of my agent and editor and industry professionals, all of whom were trying to steer me in a direction that would probably be more mainstream and, you know, just toward plot and character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just felt like everyone was a Philistine and, uh, you know, I had like a lot of rage. And so my work kept becoming more and more experimental and language driven as the industry was moving in the opposite direction. So I was shooting myself in the mm -hmm. foot. And it wasn't like I was saying like, well, I'm an artist first, and I'm not going to sacrifice my artistic integrity. It was more that I thought, ultimately, my excellence would win out over anything that these industry people were saying. And that my and that my talent right. would eventually right. win the day. Right, David. That's something that I've always wanted to ask you about, actually. So, LIE was published in two thousand one, right? Yeah. So, you know, as you as you said, that book was published in a big way, had a big first printing. You went on the road, right, and did like the author tour, and they sent a car to pick you up, and you know, to take you to the studio and take you to the hotel and stuff. So, when you turned in your, you know, your follow up manuscript to, I'm assuming, probably Random House. What was the reaction like to that second book? Because I think for a lot of people who might be listening to this program, who might be aspiring young writers, they might think like, oh, like as soon as you get a book published, like you're in the door, right? And once you're in the door, like everything's groovy and like you don't have to prove yourself anymore. But in your case, I mean, you had a book that was published that was successful and like it was printed and it sold well. And then you know, second time around, the publisher was not as enthusiastic. So what was that conversation like when you turned in the next well, manuscript? Well, only, only part of what you're saying is is accurate because the book was not the <laughs> smashing success that the publishers had hoped. So based on like less than advanced sales to bookstores and libraries and et cetera, were smaller than Random House had expected. And so that 25,000 first print run got scaled back to 15,000 and then 10,000. My national book tour got scaled back to a New York book tour, ultimately got scaled back to like half a dozen readings out on Long Island to a group of senior citizens to, to whom I read these like racy passages because I was not going to, you know, change course in any way based on facts, facts on the ground. So I was making a lot of really self-destructive decisions. 
And by the time I had that second book ready, the writing was kind of on the wall. So Random House had something called Right of First Refusal. <laughs> I say that as if it's some... <laughs> Like esoteric industry term, right? That's that right. sounds very so, Stalinist. So before yeah. <laughs> I was allowed to show the second book to anyone else, Random House had had to get a look at it. That was in my contract. But by the time I was showing it to my editor, so it, I think it was pretty clear that they were going to pass on whatever I showed them, unless it was extremely commercial. And what I what I was what I had mm. written was not. I'm interested in your phrasing, like it was self-destructive. You shot yourself in the foot. Like, you know, you went against like what everyone told you to do, but I mean, is there any universe in which you would have acquiesced to their desires? Only if I knew how to, but, but I don't think, uh, I don't think I know how to write in whatever way they wanted me to write. So, so yeah. David, you don't think if you, um, kind of set your mind to it, you could write like a conventional kind of three act, you know, plot, character, theme type of novel? Uh, like if you really were just determined to set those limits for yourself, um, you don't think you could pull it off? Or it would maybe just come out as a David Holland well, that, novel? That's what I'm thinking. It, it's funny. It's my, that's something my mom said to me for years. She'd say, uh, David, why don't you just write a bestseller? You know, as if it were some genre I could choose to work in. <laughs> so I used to write experimental fiction, but now I'm in the bestseller. Yeah, sounds easy enough, right? My People in my family have said the same thing to me as well. They're like, are you going to write a bestseller? And I'm like, yep, sure. Right. Like, yeah, sure. Uh, I know how, I know how to do that. I mean, it might be that. possible to write something more commercial, but, but the issue is that I don't think I've ever really wanted to use my writing as a path toward money. You know, like it, it would be really nice to have more readers and to have been able to have had a sustained career as a writer. But writing for me was always like something else. It, it's like, a, uh, you know, for the same reason uh, any of us in this particular conversation probably do it. You're doing it because it's a way to try to figure out how you see the world, how you belong to the world, to answer sort of big questions or to take a stab at answering big questions about time, space, and being. So since that was the purpose of fiction writing for me, uh, even if I had decided I would go write something commercial, I would still have those needs as a, as a thinker and as an artist, and they'd just have to come out in some other way. So, you know, I don't think there's any. So I guess one positive way to spin this is that all of these books that I wrote and did not get published were still really good for me in some way because it was time spent doing something that I love to do and need to do. Still, it'd be nice if someone had read them. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, what I mean, what what happened in your case shows you uh, the extent to which publishers are willing to stand by their writers, right? And the moment it looks like it's not going to be as good as they anticipated, as mo the moment that the sales don't meet the projections, they just pull the plug on it. And they'll stop the printing and like they won't try and push that writer anymore if they think it's a lost cause. Yeah, that is that is definitely accurate. And that's even more accurate now than when LIE was published 20 years ago. Yeah, it's certainly all very. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, to, 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 to paraphrase Monty Python, I mean, it's it seems like an act of the purest optimism to for Random House to have even published LIE in the first place, which is not to say that it's not a, a very good book, but it is um, a book that. Well, I mean, first of all, this is, you know, 2000, 2001, when you're in talks with Random House, and this is shortly after Infinite Jest, which was, you know, a huge and very intimidating and, and a, a book with a reputation of difficulty that nevertheless was able to sell very well. So maybe at that time, there was more interest in 
truly experimental and avant-garde fiction. But uh, but I mean, to, to publish a book like LIE from a debut author, I don't know that that would happen now. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in that book that is just going to make a lot of readers uncomfortable. I mean, either just thematic stuff or the fact that one of the chapters is suddenly written as a play. There are a lot of people who just won't won't have any frame of reference for that, won't get it, won't like it. And so for Random House to have published that, a book like that from a debut author speaks to a different time in publishing, even if they didn't end up putting as much muscle yeah. behind it as they had intended to. The fact that they had faith in it in the first place is is interesting to me. Yeah, well, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I think Infinite Jest is a good example of the way in which you can market a difficult book if you promote it as a kind of challenge to the reader. And that is very much how Little Brown promoted Infinite Jest. It was a kind of dare to the audience, and it worked. And, you know, we all went to grad school. We all know writers. You know, we have a lot of friends who are readers. I can probably count on one hand uh, the people I know who have actually read Infinite Jest front to back. And mm. so the book retains that reputation that it was promoted promoted on. You know, it still has that kind of aura around it. It's a very successful marketing tactic if you want to promote something as being difficult. And I think it can work. It's just a question of whether or not you want to put the muscle behind it to do it. It's funny. You say you can count the number of people who've read Infinite Jest on one hand, but I don't have enough... Present company. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, you know, 20 times that feel, you know, free to comment on the book, despite not having read it, it seems to me. Indeed. But also, uh, you know, David, when I interviewed you for The Millions, we talked a little bit about your brush with Michael Peach. And that got cut out. Sure. So LIE, this goes back to what you were saying, Jared, about the climate maybe around 2000 being different for books that were a little bit more ambitious or, or difficult. Because LIE, once this high power agent got interested in it, that book was, it generated like a bidding war really quickly. And as Seth has noted, it in many ways is a rather odd book, right? But that was a time where that kind of book could get interest from multiple publishers. One of those publishers was Michael Peach at Little Brown, who of course was uh, Wallace's editor and also my uh, teacher, Rick Moody's editor. And uh, the reason he in the end turned the book down was that he felt it bore too much similarity to Moody's, some of Moody's suburban novels right? The Ice Storm, Purple America. And that he thought it would be, it wouldn't look great for him to have two writers on his list who are sort of mining some of the same territory. So, you know, I've often felt like if Peach had bought that book, that's an example of things not breaking right for me. I think things would have gone a lot differently and he Mm -hmm. would have known how to handle it because the person who did buy it, who was really a wonderful man, uh, he didn't really edit the book at all. I mean, he he told me on our first meeting, like, oh, I just want you to know I'm a fan and we could go forward with the book the way it is now. And I had all sorts of, I remember asking him, like, do you think there are too many italics? And he was like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, but now when I look at the book, I'm like, how did anyone permit me to do this? And anyway, that that was my brush with uh, with Michael Peach. And I don't believe we've had a second brush, but... We're both still alive. After I read Infinite Jest, I had fantasies of giving my novel to him. And it's insane that you actually had that chance. And I don't know what's more painful, never having that chance or of having had that chance. <laughs> Which publisher scrapped the Woody Allen book after the walkout? Which publisher was that? It was part of the Hachette group, uh, Hatchet, Hachette. Because Mike, Michael Peach is like the, the head now there. And like he initially stood by the book and said that like they were going to go forward and publish it. But then once the walkout happened, he was obviously overruled. Yeah. No comment. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going, I'm trying really hard not to make a comment. 
comment. I think I'm going to succeed. <laughs> Your no comments are a comment. Are they? Yeah, the no, yeah, the no comment itself is a comment. It's like saying something is problematic. You know, it's like that's... It's like, what, it's like saying, uh, you, you know, my writing is not political. Is itself a political statement? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like the idea that you can't not be thinking. Oh boy, we're going into like a Wittgensteinian hole here. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. just thinking about that. I think we're rewriting Wittgenstein's. Uh... Yeah, we're rewriting the Tractatus here. <laughs> yeah, David, can you talk about can you talk about that? Because you published um, a really nice piece. You published a really nice piece on your blog about Wittgenstein. Would you like to talk about that? Oh, you read that piece? Yeah, it was very nice. Huh. I think I was trying to talk about this. Goes back to why people get into writing, right? Like why anyone would want to make fiction. And the piece I, I put on my blog was about how studying Wittgenstein was in some ways launching off point for me for becoming a fiction writer, because what I learned through Wittgenstein was this idea that most of the things in life that are most important and most um, intensely felt maybe can't be expressed in words, that language has its limits. And Wittgenstein famously said, language is a form of life. And if a lion could speak, you wouldn't understand it because the world a lion would need to describe is so drastically different from ours. Its language would develop in accordance with those needs, not our needs. So this idea formed for me the idea of language being a sort of cage that we could not get out of. And the reason I had been studying philosophy was with the hopes of um, being able to know how to live and understand some sort of objective truth like truth as known by God or some, something like that. And with my study of Wittgenstein, that hope came to a close. And that was really a great moment for me because it cured me of wanting something I couldn't have. And yet the desire, right, to get outside of the cage of language remained. And it occurred to me that the only way I ever felt somebody getting close to saying the Wittgensteinian unsayable was through certain kinds of fiction. And so so for me, there was like a direct link between the study of Wittgenstein and the sort of pivot I made toward fiction, which I think is an unusual origin story probably for most fiction writers. And I have, I have when, to say, when, let me um, just also say that the way I just synopsized yeah. that was pretty expert. I mean, I feel really good about, about that. Yeah, we'll keep that and we'll keep what we just said about that. When did that happen exactly? Is uh, it was 1937. I remember I was having a a, a cup of uh, of espresso. I, I believe I believe it was in Prague. Jared Jared was, was there. Shortly after Crystal knocked. <laughs> no, I guess this would have been uh, in the mid 90s before before, okay, before grad school like toward the end of my undergraduate years. So this was a discovery that you made yeah sort of in the in that intellectual ferment at that time. And you weren't sure at that point whether you wanted to study philosophy or, or pursue fiction. And that kind of settled the, yeah, the case for yeah. you. Yeah, and it also made me look back on so much. Uh, I mean, anyone who's studied like the canon of philosophy knows that when you when you read Hegel or, or Heidegger is the best example, you just come across a ton of language that doesn't really seem to be written in any human language. 
And it's like, it's really overheated language, you know, and I was able after studying Wittgenstein to look back on some of that and appreciate what some of those philosophers were trying to do, which was to get at something that they perceived as being very difficult to get at in language. But I was also able to see that their project was ultimately futile and that they could not say the thing they were trying to say. And that's why the language gets so crazy and overheated. It's also the reason that only like weird kinds of fiction to me seem to be able to point toward this uns- this sort of void that you're not supposed to be able to speak into because you can't do it in any ordinary way or you, you can't, I mean, really great fiction could not be uh, synopsized while you're in line for groceries. Well, one of my favorite uh, Wittgenstein stories is and let me see if I have this right, but it's one where I think he was approached by maybe a colleague or a student and he was complaining to him and he was saying like, why did, why did people always think in the ancient world that the sun went around the earth? Why did they think that the earth was the center of the universe? And his colleague said something like, well, obviously because it looks like the sun is going around the earth. And Wittgenstein said like, well, what would it look like if it didn't look like the sun was going around the earth? And like that essential problem of perception, the fact that our perceptions are kind of flawed by their very nature is something that I think speaks to what you're talking about, David. It's like the very way that we perceive the world is deeply, deeply flawed. And I think if there's any engine that can either take us out of that or could, you know, exploit that, it's it's language and that's the that's the world of fiction. It's exploiting everything that is irrational about being human. Yeah, I think that I think that's beautifully said. There's also something for me about trying to recontextualize this uh, anthrocentric way that, that we move through the world where we seem to think that the way we're seeing the universe is somehow like the default correct form of perception. But we're as limited as that lion, uh, right? And and so we're, I don't know. I like to I like to go and read uh, Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot uh, often because it's like this really beautiful sermon that that recontextualizes all of this in in a, a page. And uh, you know, I think we're all taking each other and ourselves extremely seriously. But the fact is, we'll be gone before the universe can blink. Yeah, there's a really great um, there's a really great passage. I'm not sure if it's in maybe Stephen Jay Gould or if it's in somebody else, but he talks about the the eventual heat death of the universe and the the explosion of our sun. And he, he uses the image of, you know, which species will watch the sun explode. And he says, it almost certainly will not be us. Like another species will be here to witness the death of our sun. And that alone concentrates the mind pretty quickly. Just the knowledge that you probably won't even be here for the end. Right. Does that kind of encapsulate what uh, the, the the friction between you know today's the way today's publishing world is going and and basically what we're aiming for? It's like we're trying to reconcile some middle ground where this is what we're talking about, like the ultimate scope of things, and yet you know it, it it's essentially against the grain of what you just said, David. It's like none of <laughs> in 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 relative terms, you know, like none of this matters. So how do you reconcile plot and character? with those ideas. And so I guess like what, like how, what, what goes through your mind? Like when you were writing Anthropica, like, you know, that's essentially, I see that as a sort of reconciliation, you know, what is, what's the feeling behind the cabal of, you know, humans that kind of want to end the species? Like, is that, does that come from the irrelevance? Does that come from some like 
uh, subliminal anger or something or, you know? Yeah, no, I think I, I, I understand the kind of thing you're, you're asking when, when, um, I spoke with Seth for the millions. I, I talked a little bit about this toggle where I feel like I, I uh, have this sort of binary back and forth each day where in the span of five minutes, I will go from thinking that the universe uh, doesn't care about us. We don't matter. This is ephemeral and stupid and it may as well all be over right now mm-hmm. to feeling like right. everything seems so enormous in its accidental existence. And I'm deeply responsible to the people who are here and who count on me. I think that Anthropica structurally is trying to replicate that toggle and to move back and forth between deep compassion and pathos Uh and nihilism, essentially, because that's the, that's the, motion uh-huh. I feel myself making, you know, and, and so I can, I can go from scoffing at everything to crying at everything, like at the drop of a, what do you drop? Drop of a coin? Drop of a pin? What, what is that? Hat? Why, hat. why do you drop a hat? You drop a hat. Yeah. a hat. Yeah. Is there a synthesis of ethos out of that? Like, you know, you're toggling between nihilism and pathos. Is there any like ordered, you know, is there any structure? Like uh, does that Anthropica kind of like you know, you know it is like you what what do you think of democracy? <laughs> you oh, <God>. know? Okay. <laughs> like does it matter to you? It you matters know? to me when the toggle switch is in one of its two positions. Is that an, is that an answer? I see. Yeah, which is which the obvious one. Yeah, right. Got it. The experience of reading the book for me was that I mean you know I don't think it's any spoiler to say that you know at a certain point as you're reading the novel, you come to understand, as a reader, you come to understand that, you know, within the scope of this narrative, uh, the world is going to come to an end. There are chapters that are clearly taking place after the destruction and obliteration of, of Earth. Um, and yet, when we, you know, because the novel is achronological in that way. So, you know, when we go back to, to some of these, you know, sections that deal with the kind of quotidian foibles of the characters, I, I don't feel encouraged by the author to make light of them or to think of them as trivial or meaningless, even though I, I know that, you know, everything is going to come to an end very soon within the, within the scope of the narrative. And I think if there is any kind of synthesis, which I, I don't know if there is, but, but it's in the, I, I think it, it, would, it, would, it would lie in the, the ability, that, at least that I had as a reader, to stay invested in the day-to-day, you know, desires and and conflicts that these characters are facing, in spite of the this very grand scope that the that the story is going to have. Well, maybe David, you can tell us a little bit about like where the title of the novel comes from and what the antho- anthropic yeah, theory well, is within, anthropic principle. In, right inside of the book, the um, natural resource scientist Stuart Dregs has discovered that if his calculations are correct, human beings are exhausting all of the Earth's resources every eight days, so that uh, none of this is actually possible. And so he comes up with this theory, which is the, the anthropic theory or principle, which is that everything is only here because we want it to be. And that human desire, in fact, is creating and sustaining the universe and there's nothing outside of it. And that ends up being like a really, if there's a, it's a plot point in the book, because if uh, Laszlo Catastropa, who is the character who would like to bring about the end of human life, 
he cannot be successful if the Anthropica principle is true, because there would be uh, no way to end something if the something is everything. So that that is where the title comes from. But um, you know, I was thinking of other other uses of anthropic or anthropomorphic, uh, just as like human human centered. And now it's time for an animal riot ad break. But don't worry, we're not about to interrupt this episode with plugs for weird muscle milk drinks or promos for grammar correcting apps. Instead, we're going to take 30 seconds to anti-promote our upcoming novel, Anthropica, by David Hollander. Here's what critics are already saying about the book. The Manhattan Book Review writes, I didn't appreciate the continuous use of foul language and sexual dialogue included in nearly every character's story. And here's one from the always reliable Goodreads platform. One Goodreads reviewer says, This book was very weird to me, and I have to say that I didn't understand any of it. I would really love to have enjoyed this one, but it was just so off the wall. In the end, it just wasn't for me at all. Anthropica will be released upon the world on September 1st, 2020. Head over to AnimalRiotPress.com to pre-order your copy now or to contact us with more anti-reviews of Anthropica. Let us know what you think. And now, back to the episode. Right, should we say maybe where the anthropic, what the anthropic principle means? Yeah, why don't you tell us? Science or cosmology? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I understand it in cosmology, the anthropic principle is basically this idea that everything as we understand it in the universe, the laws of physics the the essential forces of the universe the expansion of space the length of the universe all of these things are only understandable to us because we couldn't live in a universe where they would not be understandable right like the only reason why we understand the world in which we live is because the world is hospitable enough for us to live in it and therefore understand it as we do so it is kind of wittgensteinian in that way it is kind of a closed loop because it couldn't look any differently to us But it's entirely possible that there are other universes out there that are completely inhospitable to any form of life that could understand it. So, yeah, it's possible that the only reason that we that we have the reality that we do is because it's been, you know. Right. So it's uh, another like sort of closed or tautological system, which is certainly what the world of my book is supposed to be like. It's a a closed system. And, Uh you know, that those ideas have always you know, even when I was a kid, ideas like that really thrilled and terrified me. And as did the idea that there was enough stuff to sustain our rates of consumption. Like, I remember asking my dad as a little kid, like, how far do the roads go? He was like, oh, well, some of them go across the whole country. And I was like, really? Huh. And I was like, what? Or, you know, like um, <laughs> just watching the truck come around to fill up everybody's heating oil during the winter, right? And just watching him dump all this oil into all these houses in my, you know, throughout my neighborhood. But then there were hundreds of thousands of neighborhoods just like mine, um, millions. And just thinking about the usage, right? That, like, how could there still be oil in in the earth, right? At this, and that always, uh, even now, it seems unlikely to me that, that there really is enough for us to keep doing this. I mean, you can you can circle the planet in a in a swift flying jet in a matter of hours. So how can it contain all this stuff? It's ridiculous. I think that's why the the anthropic principle of your 
your character Stuart, or the anthropic theory of, of your character Stuart Dregs is such a brilliant sci-fi conceit because it makes literal something that most people, a, a kind of, a, a very common assumption that people have without really thinking about it or questioning it. I mean, I think, I think people are, are certainly more, is that the dinner bell? Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think. <laughs> Thanks, Pat Walt. <laughs> I think people are more environmentally conscious now than they ever have been. But still, I think there's there is something to this idea that that humans are central to the the Earth's existence, and that that everything that's here is here for our benefit. And and you just kind of turn uh, you don't really turn it on its head as much as just make it completely literal in the book. And that's what makes it such a smart science fiction conceit that is taking something that, that we are all probably thinking about, or that, that we all kind of assume on some unconscious level, but then yeah, yeah. Sort of takes it to well, uh, this very extreme I think, uh, uh, place. The proper response to that is thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. I also think You're there's welcome, something really funny, almost in a perverse <laughs> way to uh, imagine a universe that is opposite the universe I see in which human beings are just this infinitesimal uh, blink in the dark, right? And instead to imagine a universe in which actually this is all there is, which is, uh, you know, to me more more tragic or tragicomic than, you know, like a, it's just a really funny idea to me. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like the absurdity of the ontological question. Like if you could imagine a perfect universe, what would it be like? But it's like, it's hard enough to imagine a universe in which things are exactly as they are. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. like, imagine a universe I mean, that is exactly I just feel exactly so this. bewildered all the you time. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I can barely report back to people what I think the world is like. How could I possibly imagine a different one? Yeah, exactly. I was just, uh, you know, I've, I've been thinking as we've been talking for the last 15 minutes or so that, you know, I, I can imagine some listeners... Mm -hmm wondering how this relates to fiction at all and you know maybe maybe not you know the the very refined you know listeners of the animal riot podcast but you know but but let's say as virginia wolf called it you know the common reader um you know who who you know as we as we were saying off the air a little bit you know um, I, 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 the very I, I, british I, way to say idiots <laughs> Yeah. Well, but no, but Virginia Woolf revered the common reader as opposed yeah. to the kind of academic or intellectual. But but yeah, it does have a kind of whiff of, of elitism. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, the majority of people and therefore the majority of people who, who read, at least, you know, we can imagine, are not, you know, hyper educated, you know, MFA alums like us. And, and good for them, you know, by the way. <laughs> or sometimes they're very educated and very smart, but just don't have that predilection. But know? don't have the sensibility for But But yeah, I, I mean, right. a lot of people turn to fiction looking for, and by fiction, I'm including, you know, films or even plays. And people turn to narrative works of art for some kind of entertainment, for you know, just a way to pass the time for escapism at times, which I don't really get personally. I don't really feel any kind of escape when I'm reading a book or, or, or watching a movie. But um, I guess it seems like all of us have a different kind of approach to fiction or have gotten different kinds of things out of reading fiction than just mere kind of, than it just being a mere pastime. And I mean, just to kind of draw on the ideas of David Hollander here, I mean, you've titled one of your classes, The Enemies of Fiction which is based on the John Hawkes idea uh, that the enemies of fiction are, are plot, character, setting, and theme. And you also structure your workshop with a kind of, with a series of sections. I mean, you'll have a, or, or units, you know, you do a unit on idea, a unit on voice, you know, things that people may not really think about when they're reading fiction, but are nevertheless, at least for certain kinds of fiction, really crucial ideas. Things like voice and idea, and I can't remember all the other units that you do, the way you kind of structure your workshop, but... 
But I mean, this, you know, some of this gets really granular. And well, anyway, I'll let someone respond. Before <laughs> yeah, I, just keep, I, I guess I'm just keep on spooling. The other two sentence. categories usually are language and structure. But I think you're right that most people listening mm -hmm. to this would mm -hmm. wonder whether or not we were talking about fiction as, as they perceive it. And my thing is, I never, I don't have, I don't have anything against anyone who wants to read for fun, right? I, like anyone who wants to read to be, to be entertained, you know, or people who do want to just disappear into a good story. And, uh, and yeah, I guess that is a kind of escapism. Maybe, maybe that's the definition of it. So uh, those readers, they have their books, right? And they're not my books and they're probably sadly not my readers. And I accept that. You know, I'm, I'm really writing for people who have encountered maybe some of the same deeper, who've been moved in similar ways to the way I've been moved by fiction, which is, uh, a, a, it's, a, it's a deeper and more lasting kind of impression uh, that, that a great book makes on me. Than, than you know the kind of impression that Harry Potter makes on my on my kids. What about um you know here's a really good example and I want everyone to just really hold kind of like I don't know the 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 personal opinions about Jonathan Franzen. What about you know you really you know you feel the same way as I do about him like he's a terrific writer but he does not really deal in this realm. You know, he really does like his books are in a way very entertaining. I might even call them upmarket, you know, <laughs> for whatever the fuck that's worth. But I mean, like, how does he leave a lasting impact with you? I mean, is maybe his it's just his language. But I mean, it's totally steeped in this in the earth and humans being the end all be all, you know? Right. And, and we should, and we should say this in context of Franzen's essay too, where he talks about what is it? Contract writers and right. Right. Mr. Difficult. Yeah. That's the essay about Gaddis, Mr. Difficult. Yeah. Which I, I contend is a really good essay. It's just, you know, whether I agree with it is another. Well, maybe if, just for context, maybe we should say that in that essay, Franzen talks about like there are two types of books. One book is like a contract book where like there's a good faith relationship with the reader where you are going to be kind to them and you're going to guide them along Status. and you're going to entertain them. And then the other model is what does he refer to it as? Like the the status writer we're like basically and, 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 and gaddis is the uh is the the example is the number one example in that in that um paradigm yeah where the experience of reading fiction is like one of intimidation where you're you're meant to sit down and recognize that the writer is so much smarter and more talented than you and it's your job to sit there and do the work that they demand of you and to revel in their genius and <laughs> those are the two those are the two models that friends and kinds of kinds of sets up for uh for fiction, uh, at least at the time that he wrote that essay, which I think was probably in the early 2000s after the corrections was published. So yeah, David, how do you feel? about uh, that? <laughs> Well, first of all, any conversation about Jonathan Franzen is probably a little behind the curve. I believe his his relevance has faded. So we're having a conversation that maybe would have been, you know, more interesting in 2013. Yeah. And that, that well, that's kind of why I said, like, let's hold all of the bullshit, you know, everything between Oprah and like when he was selling like millions of copies every time he printed something, you know, just strictly, you know, and like in the sense of he does not write about the questions of that, like transcend our like petty existence. I think he you know? writes less and less about those preoccupations with each book. He started off as a as a fairly experimental writer. I don't know if you tried to read uh, if you his book Strong Motion, which is the book about earthquakes. 
That's true, actually. You know, it's not very good, in my opinion. The Corrections, I think, is a masterpiece because that represents like the midway point of his career, which was a career that was moving more and more away from language and toward traditional story. So with the corrections, I think he'd found this really sweet spot where language was still working hard to do something more than simply convey information. And at times, you know, his sentences did give you the the feeling of like a world on the brink. And that comes from like micro choices that we'd we'd have to like sit down with the book together and, and we could talk about them. But I think as he moved past the corrections, because he's, you know, this, uh, egomaniacal asshole. He just wanted to keep keep getting a bigger and bigger audience. And so he, he moved. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, I think he's an incredibly I said hold writer. the opinion. Time has <laughs> and part of that is that he represents the white patriarchy. Yeah, right. That's true. And and honestly, I would I loved purity. And like I even say that I have a friend who I never talked to him about this, but I was at a reading, a poetry reading and so Franzen somehow got brought up on stage and then this guy yelled, purity sucks. That that was me. It's just ironic when people t- talk shit about someone that, you know, their, their talent is just so. Oh no, but that is really frustrating. You know, I taught the corrections in a, in a graduate craft class at Sarah Lawrence once. And, you know, I just wanted to kill everyone for not seeing what he'd accomplished or how, how difficult that book would have been to, to put together. So, and even, you know, and freedom I, I liked and, and didn't love. And then purity, honestly, I gave up on. So, and, and for me, that had to do with the fact that I could feel him moving more purely into a realm of Eudora Welty-like, character-driven, plot-driven fiction. That's fine, right? Uh, but it's not for me. So he, w- he was becoming less and less with each book, the kind of writer I wanted to read. But that didn't mean I ever thought he, I never thought he wasn't talented. He's, he's incredibly talented. As am I. As am I. I can remember the exact can... point, actually, at which I sent Purity <laughs> windmilling across the room. <laughs> Are you going to share what that was? Yeah, sure. When I mean, I guess since I set it up, I should, right? Well, I have like, I have a strike system when it comes to when it comes to reading and like, the third strike was the seduction scene where Andreas Wolf is in the hotel room, like in South America with the, uh, I think her name is Pip. The yeah, protagonist. that's late in the novel. And the, it's, it's right. It's, it's right in the center. Yeah. And there's a seduction scene in like a hotel room and it's just worthy of a soap opera. Like it's really <laughs> not very, not very good. And that was it for me. But yeah, we should use this as a transition to talk about, you know, speaking of uh, kind of the levels of like, you know, where we at our, you know, if we if we take one end of Jonathan Franzen's career. It's so funny. I, w- I was thinking about that when Jared was just speaking. We were going to talk about European fiction versus American fiction. Well, so, I mean, do I need to make an introduction or David, do you have thoughts already? Can you summarize? Can you anticipate what I'm... No, no. I, the reason I was thinking about it was I was thinking about Jared's strike system, which he also employed when I, when I recommended Michelle Welbeck's The Elementary Particles to him. Which he, uh, he actually, Jared, you actually sent me the sentence right, that was the end of the book for you. You were yeah. like, after this sentence, <laughs> which essentially describes somebody walking down a hill in three mutually exclusive ways. Yes, there was, yeah, there was an obvious, yeah, there was a very clear redundancy, like in plain sight. As I remember, there was a, there was a sentence like he walked up the yes. hill and then the next sentence was like the terrain was hilly. 
at which point I threw the book across the room. <laughs> like, I, I won't stand for that. And now this, of course, is a book that I think is uh, bordering on a masterpiece. So, <laughs> But that could totally, you know, Jared, honestly, that could totally be a matter of translation. Bring Easily. it on, man. Bring it on. Easily could be a matter of translation. I so, just, absolutely. I, absolutely we so we have, there are four of us here. I just want to go on record as being in Jared's camp on this one. I, I didn't know about the the thing that I, I, I didn't know about. Uh, David, I didn't know that you were a fan of the book. Jared, I didn't know that you had read it and quit. I picked up The Elementary Particles because I was assigned, this was when I was reviewing movies, I was assigned to review this film that Welbeck was involved in. I didn't really know anything about him. I wanted to do some research. I read, I, and like Jared, I did not finish the elementary particles, which maybe means that I'm not allowed to have an opinion on it since I didn't finish it. But like Jared, I was so frustrated and fed up that, and then I found out this whole thing that you guys had had, uh, this discussion that you had had about the book. And uh, so I guess we have two well, pro and, and two nay, and I think our producer Katie is in the pro camp, so if she's going to be the tiebreaker, I guess. Well, you know, a friend of mine, a friend of mine gave me a copy of uh, Submission, and I've heard actually very good things about that book, and I'm sure I'll probably get to it someday. Thank you for referring yeah. to it in this uh, French title uh, rather than just saying submission. Of course. I mean, would you expect anything less of me? <laughs> it's just funny because it's a, it's an exact cognate. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I, I'm a big fan of David Hollander's novel, Antwoppita. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I read a number uh, of his novels and, and really enjoyed them. Welbeck. And for me, it's just something about his thesis, which is something like, as long as human beings reproduce sexually, we will be miserable. And something about the way he works that thesis out over a number of books just really, really does please me. And you guys did not make it to the end of the elementary particles, but it kind of shoots off into infinity at the end. Like the, like the book. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, uh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it, it literally goes from a, a story of like a sexually obsessed guy and his brother and his like, you know, scientist brother. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, like, a, you know, it's a case study of these two individuals. And then we just go off yeah. into, yeah. into like, you One know, the cool. next stage of human development. <laughs> It's it's pretty fascinating. Well, I actually still have my copy. It's it's in a it's in a pile of books that I'm going to give away at some point, but I have not yet given it away. So there's still time for me to revisit it and maybe see it with fresh eyes. Well, I think that, but I don't know about that. I think that that thesis that I'm describing may be uh, most clearly articulated in a different Welbeck book, which is called The Possibility of an Island. I, I don't think it's as good as the elementary particles, but something about what he's doing is clearer more quickly. So I recommend that one as well. Well, this might be a good point to talk about the differences between the European novel and the American novel, but keeping the focus on David, of course, since he's our star today. David demands the spotlight. He hogs yeah. it at every opportunity. Yeah. Our listeners can't see right now, but David is full Hollywood. He's got his sunglasses on as we're doing this podcast. The Your influences, David, because I don't think we've never really talked about your influences. I mean, would you say that you are equally influenced by the European novel uh, than the American novel, or perhaps more so? Because I would say, in your case, I think probably if, if I recognize mm. influences in your in your style, I, I'd say probably you're more indebted to the well, European Well, I do read a lot of non-American fiction, but probably my biggest influences are are like the American postmodernists. So, so I don't know if it's true that, that like European fiction has had this like... Uh, 
had this enormous influence on my writing, but I have found that it's easier for ambitious, non-conforming, subversive books to get published elsewhere, especially especially now. And probably the writer who's had the biggest influence on me in the last decade is the Hungarian, Laszlo Krasnohorkai. I was about to say, I was about to challenge you right there that, that honestly, he might be the most similar to you. I don't know if you'd argue with that, but no, I would agree with that. In fact, the reason that the arguable protagonist of Anthropica is named Laszlo mm. is an homage because with L.I.E., the protagonist was named Harlan, right. also uh, an homage to um, Harlan Ellison. Uh-huh. So, so you know, Kresna Horkai, and there's another Hungarian writer, uh, Attila Bordis, who has been kind of an influence on me. It has, uh, in those two cases, uh, just to do with like language and sentence writing and this kind of like... Uh, effusive outpouring of language that, um, you know, reminds me in some ways of Wallace, but it's a more extreme version. I just finished reading this novella by Krasna Horkai called The Last Wolf, which is, a, you know, a 90-page book that is one sentence long. So something about that and the way it matches for me, the frenetic nature of consciousness is very, very pleasing. And, uh, Certainly a book like The Last Wolf could not get published in America. So, so you know, it's the, it's the daringness of a, lot of, uh, of a lot of fiction that comes from elsewhere that attracts me to it. Yeah, and I think what, I think what passes for literary fiction in Europe is uh, at a far higher standard than what passes for literary fiction in America. Like Welbeck, for example, like I don't know if Welbeck would be published widely in America, but he's like, he's France's biggest no, writer, arguably. Absolutely not. I will say that right now. Absolutely not. I don't know when that book was published, but if you're talking about today, no. Elementary I, Particles was like 97 or 98, I think. Yeah, yeah. He has a very unmistakably French sensibility, though, I have to say Oh, that. yeah. That's true. It's very cynical. <laughs> He's which, very much in the tradition of the, like... Yeah. sticking point for Jared. That's what I loved about it. That's what I loved about our conversations about this book is because, <laughs> you know, Jared, you're such a proponent of hope, and it bothers me. <laughs> no, well, you know, Welbeck, Michel Welbeck in, exists in the tradition of like French extremism, which I actually don't mind that much from Marquis de Sade to like Rimbaud to Baudelaire to Georges Bataille and like the Surrealists. Welbeck is firmly within that that tradition. And I actually like a lot of artists from that tradition, but for some reason, I don't know, he just defends my sensibilities. And it's not because I'm uh, like interminably hopeful, as you describe it, Brian. I don't think that's accurate at all, actually. Maybe it's because you're a prude. I take great offense to that description. I'm just, I'm just razzing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's true. A prude who enjoys I, Bataille and Dassad. But, but yeah, don't they, I, I don't they also hate, don't they hate, they hate him in France too. It's a very, like they love him, they hate him. He's very controversial. That's another reason it wouldn't be published today. It's, it's fixated on the. Yeah, he's. That would make sense. I think he's kind of. I think he's kind of like Franzen in France. Like he's the person everybody loves to hate. Interesting. But he's also willfully provocative. I mean, a lot of people hate him because of statements he's made or, or themes that they've in, intuited from his books. I mean, I don't believe. Like I don't a, believe yeah, I would want to have certainly a not a, a vanilla kind of you know, upmarket kind of writer. Now, that, that film that I uh, had to review, it was a very strange... Uh, we're just kind of zeroing in on Welbeck right now for some reason, but um, if oh, you want to yeah, check it yeah. out, it was it was called The the Kidnapping of Michelle Welbeck, and it was sort of done as almost like as a Curb Your Enthusiasm kind of thing, where it's filmed like a pseudo-documentary where Welbeck is playing a version of himself. And, I mean, and, and basically the premise is that he's kidnapped, and this is sort of recounting this period when he was completely absent from the public eye. 
make you just completely disappeared. And this film is like, well, this is what really happened. So the, the premise is that he's kidnapped and he, and, and the whole film, it's so, there, there's very little plot. It's mostly just him sitting around annoying the people who kidnapped him. Like he's constantly asking for cigarettes and asking for a light. I love that. And they, I mean, they just, they it seems like they regret kidnapping him at a certain point because he's just so irritating. And so yeah, probably it, better I kind of got anything else he's ever written. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it wasn't a great <laughs> film. I kind of got a kick out of it though, just as a, a kind of almost as a cringe comedy, but definitely not the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with as one of you just said. Yeah. There, there's, um, there's a story by Am Holmes, an old story. I forget what it's called. Sarah Lawrence, graduate yes yeah it's called something like go home johnny it was in the safety of objects but anyway it's about a man who abducts this kid and then he finds the kid like so tedious that he eventually brings him back and that's the whole that's the whole story (laughs) i always always really enjoyed that one yeah she's she's an interesting writer for sure yeah she takes some chances you know uh so i appreciate that about her well, yeah, that's, yeah another, SLC that's another thing about you, David, is that, you know, um, as I mentioned, you're a professor at Sarah Lawrence and the, uh, I would, I would say the most beloved professor that Sarah Lawrence has ever had period. And or, or planet earth for that. or on planet <laughs> earth or maybe other planets I might wager, but you are also just incredibly generous when it comes to, you know, you, you know, when it comes to other people's work, you don't, you give comments and direction based on what they are trying to do. And so like, you know, af- after, you know, what, 20 years have you been teaching? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, at some point, like what, at this point, do you get any creative juice out of it? Is there any like, you know, or, or if not that, I mean, obviously it, it gets tedious after a while, you know, but does it still improve your writing? Does reading someone's, you know, sci-fi novel about, you know, what if we could read each other's minds, do anything for, you know, we can't read each other's minds, you know, (laughs) no reading, reading student work does not generally help me as a writer. Yeah, because it helps, you know, it helps us when we go to class, you know, but it's only for a semester. So I guess. Yeah, it probably helped me when I was a a grad student or, or maybe it did. I can't remember. That was a long time ago. Not yeah, me. I know. Nothing can sometimes, help you. Sometimes you can learn in, in the negative spaces, though, right? Of like, well, I know I don't want to do that. But probably the the part of me that still is enthusiastic or passionate about teaching is the just the part that feels, going back to the toggle switch, the part that just feels a duty to other people and a right, responsibility right. to help those people who have put their trust in me. And, you know, it's the reason that uh, I think I'm a pretty good dad. You know, I, I just uh, want to be responsible to people. And in that way, I, I do still get a thrill out of feeling like I'm helping somebody sort of fulfill some potential I've seen in them. But it's separate from, in a lot of ways, it's separate from my own writing. It feels like a, a different thing. So I don't, the, I don't know, though, the, David. I, well, I just, I, I saw one of your kids walk in the room earlier and you totally ignored them, so... <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Percy. I, I'm not sure. They maybe uh, they know that I often hold Zoom classes, and they probably expected that I would do what I usually do, which is introduce them to my class. But given that this was a, a podcast, and that obviously the stakes, oh no, you should have done that. The stakes are very the stakes that. are very high, uh, <laughs> yeah. and in this in this high stakes world of small publishing podcasts, I I didn't really yeah, want to get right. them involved. I, I thought that. 
the repercussions were, were potentially too dangerous. Right. One thing that we always ask in writing workshops is what are the stakes, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, the reason I asked is because, you know, you call what you did after LIE, you know, mistakes, shooting yourself in the foot, whatever. And yet, you know, you stay true to what you want to write and what comes out of your pen, you know. But when it comes to students, do you give sort of like market advice ever at all? Have you ever done that? Have you ever steered someone to, hey, like, you know, this is where I think publishing is going, like kind of against or or even brought up your story? Like, how do you view that in your interactions of like, you know, being compassionate towards other writers and wanting to help them? Yeah, I've probably brought up my story where applicable. Sometimes I'll read something and I'll recognize that it has commercial value. And I will definitely tell that to a writer and talk about the aspects of it that seem to me could potentially be brought up in the mix to fully embrace that commercial viability. That that happens. Uh, I'm not really equipped to talk to people about the vicissitudes of the market, not really really knowing them myself. But certainly I I have had... um, just in the last in the last several years, I've had some grad students whose work I was like, you know, this is going to get published for sure, and I think here are some steps you could take uh, to make that happen. And and you know, I walk people through trying to find agents and and that kind of industry stuff. But yeah, sometimes you can tell when something is just really commercially viable, and you know uh-huh. that yeah, I usually feel really glad for the students that that's uh, that that's the mode they're working in because you know they're gonna see potentially some monetary success and also just the the other kind of success where you have a bunch of readers that that would be uh i've often thought that would probably be a nice thing yes. to have readers <laughs> yeah i mean i i think one thing that i appreciate about the mfa program at sarah lawrence and I, 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 I kind of credit Brian Morton with setting this tone. And, you know, I mean, this is for anyone who's listening who might be thinking about, you know, doing an MFA program at some point. I mean, there are a lot of different metrics that you can use as you look at different programs. But, but Brian Morton, in his tenure as the director of the program, and he's now stepped down, is, you know, he wanted the focus to be on learning the craft of writing and creating a writing habit rather than focusing on publishing or trying to make your thesis you know, immediately publishable, even though some students were able to do that um, and publish their thesis. And, and I mean, I think I, I appreciate that because, well, for one thing, so many people stop writing after they're out of the MFA program. Most of those people mm-hmm. are probably not serious writers, but there is something to be said about having that structure in but, place for two years and then kind of having it pulled, pulled away. But Seth, let me just interject for one second and yeah. say they aren't serious writers, but they are willing to spend $45,000 on learning how to write. Apparently, mm-hmm. that's what's so wild is, is I, mean, I, I mean, I won't name anyone specifically. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, changing your trajectory if circumstances change. But it is funny that people would invest that much in, in doing an MFA and then just going in a, in a completely different direction. I mean, not, not even just career-wise, but if you're not going to spend your time writing i mean what was it all for so anyway that was something i always and well, I mean, according, that's, according yeah. to according to uh david nothing it was for nothing <laughs> <laughs> yes and nothing and everything. everything correct and for and for everything nothing right. and everything isn't that but, a, i mean uh, i think that, that i think that speaks to yeah isn't that a borges parable nothing and everything everything and nothing maybe i don't know you always say that i don't know something about nothing being an important but uh it's very important that we do it well that's the um that's the bhagavad gita yeah right? that's the toggle also right that 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 sentence that to me can you can you say it because i know you have it uh, every, every, me, but that, that everything to me is... you do is completely meaningless 
but it is very important that you do it. That you know, that's that's it for me. I mean, that I think everyone should be able to hear that. And, yeah, that kind of actually and, maybe and I should just uh, stop writing books and just like keep uh, scrawl that everywhere I go. Bring a can of spray paint with me. I'm done writing books anyway. I'd like to do something else now. I'm thinking. Maybe could get really good at paintball. I think I, I think I could be really good at that. Get really good at winning the lottery. That's my next goal. Yeah, I don't think I, that doesn't sound like something I can control as much as I could control my my performance on the the paintball grid. Is it a grid? Where do you, where do you, where do you do you play like field? A maybe field, yes, a compound. The, the field. A moderately dangerous game. Yes, the exact <laughs> amount of danger I'm looking for moderate moderate danger yeah a, yeah a, a palatable amount of danger <laughs> so i have a copy here in front of me of uh the art of the novel by milan kundera which actually came recommended to me by brian morton many years ago shout out to brian morton and the last piece in this collection is kundera's speech for the jerusalem prize which i believe he received in the 80s and he talks about the history of the european novel in it, and he also talks about the differences between the european novel and the american novel And one thing that he says is that the American novel, with a few exceptions, has always been quite phobic of ideas. And the European novel has has always been very idea-driven, but the American novel hasn't. And I'm not entirely sure what drives the American novel, but it's proven far more innovative, I think, at least in the last century than the European novel has. So I wonder, maybe, David, if you can think out loud about that and just... Tell me what you uh, what you think. Well, the moment you you mentioned the European novel being more open to uh, ideas or concept, I probably right away thought of a, a book I mentioned when Seth and I were talking for the millions, which is um, Julio Cortazar's Hopscotch, which is a book in which you know people are having really intense com- philosophical conversations all the time about uh, <laughs> the nature the nature of life and the world in a way that I don't think you really could have in an, an American novel. But it also seems to me like the American novel has been able to reinvent itself sort of over and over. So that there really is, I mean, probably when I think about the, the great American novel, I think about, you know, sprawling, sprawling tales in which a character is moving through the world in an attempt to understand something about the meaning of life. Right. And that that's uh, usually dramatized through um, scene units in, in a way that is not particularly, <laughs> I want to say not particularly innovative, but that that's not necessarily true or what I want to say. But there's something about the way an American novel tends to behave well that European novels don't seem to do. They don't behave. They don't follow rules or strictures uh, the way American novels do here in MFA programs. For instance, we talk a ton about point of view right? Julio Cartazar does not give two shits about point of view. Like he could, ha- he could write a- an entire novel in third, third person close, but for some reason give the woman behind, uh, the woman who's handing someone a coffee, a sudden point of view. Like, like the rules will break down more because I don't think they recognize the rules as much. And that I think can be really cool and interesting, but also off-putting to American readers who have accepted a set of, of rules for their fiction. I do think it's maybe worth just as a, at least as a footnote here pointing out that Cortázar was not European, but um, Argentinian. Right, Argentinian. And, but I mean, so but, I'm just thinking about non-American literature. But, yeah. but well, and, and that's what I was, I was going to say. I mean, as much as the European novel, the, the, the you know, the, 
you know, if we want to be, you know, lump very broadly and say the South American novel, I mean, there's a, a quite a tradition of experimental um, writing there as well. I mean, besides Cortázar, you have Borges, you have his Marquez, uh, Bologna, right? Well, also Borges' close friend um, Adolfo Bioy Casares. You know, who, who I uh, in some ways prefer. Yeah, although of course, you know, Jared was talking about Kundera, right? Definitely like a, a writer of ideas, Camus, right? Very, very idea driven. I mean, you know, his stuff is taught more in philosophy courses than in fiction courses. Yeah, well, in the in the essay in the in the Jerusalem address, Kundera talks about how the European novel at its origins was very playful and it was very, I guess, what we say now is postmodern. You think of what the very Cervantes. You, yeah, you think about what the very first novels were. You have Cervantes, or you have like Tristram Shandy, or you have like Jacques Lefetilliste, or like Candide. These very early novels that are absolutely absurd and playful, and have tons of games stashed in them, and like follow no set of rules whatsoever. We think of that stuff as being postmodern, but like that's actually the the birth of the novel. That's how it originated. And then Kundera yeah. talks about how like in the 19th century, the novel became engaged with the society and was very invested in like, you know, that's where the social novel comes from, the individual's relationship to the greater society. And then he talks about how in the 20th century, the novel became heavily invested in ideas and philosophy and how that investment actually sucked a lot of the fun out of the European novel in the 20th century. And I think a lot of people who have even just grazed the surface of European literature in the 20th century would probably agree that a lot of it is not very fun and is very cold and desiccated. And so I think there's there's truth to that. And, you know, Kafka famously said that, you know, ideas are a cage when it comes to writing. And I think the European literature in the 20th century dramatizes that quite well. Well, I'm glad you brought up Tristram Shandy, actually, because you're right. That is, I mean, that is, it's either an 18th century or, or a 19th century novel. And I, I, I would appreciate the editor just sort of cutting it so that I'm, I say the right one. 18th century novel. 19th yeah, century Tristram Shandy, I think, is 18th century. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's it's ridiculous that I can't remember um, which century it was published in. But 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 the the point is, uh, well, a few things. One, that very much is a novel of ideas, um, actually. Uh, and and I mean, there are sections that um, are incomprehensible if you haven't read John Locke because he's doing a very direct parody of Locke. Yeah, but he's taking the piss out of him, though. He's not he, really. Yes. It is a satire, but, but I mean, as far as kind of this, I mean, anyone who reads Tristram Shandy now will immediately recognize it as being a postmodern novel avant la lettre. I mean, it's, uh, this is a postmodern, I mean, it, it has so many of the tropes that we associate with postmodernism, but one of my favorites is there's a, there's a part in the book where, um, where he says he's going to like draw a line to represent kind of the, the trajectory of the book. And the line is just a, a complete squiggle, like going off in every direction. And it's one of the funniest little gags in that book. But that book is full of gags and jokes, you know, both high and low comedy. And it has a very postmodern premise of, you know, this, of, of the narrator writing the story of his own life, but he's doing so at a rate that is slower than the rate is which, at which he is living. Meaning each day that he sits down to write and tell the story of his life, he's actually further and further behind because he has lived another day. And in that day, he's only written about like, you know, like an hour of time that happened before he was even born. Yeah, I, I think of it as like the the first uh, true metafictional text. And it probably influenced what I was doing with LIE, that, that book. And yeah, did, that one is a great joy. And, and I, you know, I'd never really thought about this trajectory that Jared described, you know, very playful origins in the European novel to something I'm a little bit colder. Uh, but that, that seems... 
that seems right. Just having not having not really ever thought about it in those terms before, but that certainly seems right. Well, would you consider like Krausner Horkai's work or like Thomas Bernhard's work to be playful? Maybe yes. playful by European standards, but not by American standards. <laughs> yeah, I think Bernhard is like the funniest writer I've ever encountered. Like, I, but I I know that other people don't think that. Like, if I'm giving someone a Bernhard book, I have to coach them and tell them that it's funny. <laughs> Uh, but, but, but I very, do very very dark humor. Very, yeah, I do that with Ka- I do that with Kafka too. Like a lot of people don't know Kafka is funny, so I'll I'll have to right. you have to tell them uh, because the the humor is working at this uh, you know at, at in the basement. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, Bernhard I think is is yes definitely playful, and Krasnohorkai he's pretty playful too. I don't have War and War, which is my favorite Krasnohorkai book here in in front of me but the first sentence is something like uh i no longer care if i live or die said corin and then looking off to his left are those swans and to me that's like so <laughs> playful and funny and is and represents the, the toggle i was talking about before yeah, right yeah. and so that's what that's what i feel in president horkai's work it is a great first sentence it makes me really happy that sentence and it has the energy of the whole book inside of it yeah, it's just so unfortunate that that's like, you know, I can imagine an, a, an American editor at like a big five publishing house getting that and just it's like it's automatically done right after that. I mean, it's just so unfortunate because that's just such a del- like and it's not that people wouldn't find that delightful. You know, it's the it's exact the reason I keep bringing up Sergio de la Papa's work over and over again is because it's such a good example of how wrong they have it. And how desperate they are to save themselves that they just blind themselves to like, you know, taking any sort of chance. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, that, yeah, because that's 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 so funny. It's like I, I would read that book. You've already sold me on it. You know, it's really. It's, yeah, the publishing industry, the publishing industry is stranded at sea and they're drinking the seawater. Yeah. Not knowing that it's that's a very, them. very good way to put it. Very good. way. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, well, I'm a writer, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you just come up with that off the top of your head? Or did you, you did you know that I'm a writer? storing that? No, right that's just extempore, man. I just, I'm dropping pearls. <laughs> like, you know how easy this is? <laughs> I know you're like four glasses in. Of it's like good, there. good, good will. With... That's a good will hunting uh, reference, I believe, isn't it? Do you know how, e- What's that? You know how easy this stuff is for me? You know that that film? Mm. That oh, yeah, that's right. When he's arguing with Stellan yeah. Skarsgård, he's like, you know how easy this is? The guy's is like crying oh, yeah. on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. I think I'm going to wrap it up. How do you guys feel? I feel I feel good about that. Yeah. Now now Seth made me feel bad that I did not parent well when my child came into the room. So I'm, I'm feeling <laughs> I was I'm feeling like I kids adore yeah, like I should go back and, and go, you know, play Legos or something. <laughs> you guys wanna come over you guys all wanna come over and play Legos with us? I love Legos. We play this we Katie and I built a a friends diorama. Love the, I guess love the friends. There when you started yeah, that. Those are that's right. Right. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 52nd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring David Hollander, whose novel Anthropica is coming out with Animal Riot on September 1st which is in just under a month. So look out for that transcripts. Oh yeah. Sorry. And featuring Seth Katz <laughs> and Jared Marcel. Pollard. No, no, let's do that. You got to do that again. I so got to do that third time. 
if you can make if you can make Seth and Jared <laughs> seem even less important, that would be good. Yeah, so, right. Right. Yeah. Introduce introduce us first, and then introduce David last, so you can say the thing about the book. Yeah, I can just I can just start with and you and. Could you uh, do the whole thing in in Piglet? I'll I'll do my best. <laughs> and Seth Katz, as well as Jared Marcel Pollen. You like that, Jared? Is that does that yeah, satisfy dude. you? Okay. Can't shut leave out up. that. Yeah. Can't leave out shut Marcel. Shut that sound that sound that sounded good. That was shut crisp. Up. Shut up. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay and we're produced by Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. All right. Well, I made that as as difficult as possible for Katie. Burn, bombing on yelling, getting gully as the burn. How no much about.